Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us through your holy word, through the, the prophet Zechariah, that he might come, and, and, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, that the words that, that he wrote many years ago would speak to us in our lives today by the power of your spirit. Amen. By show of hands, how many people here have ever been to medieval times? Okay, quite a good number of you. Oh, great, that's glad. I got to go uh, recently, maybe about a year and a half ago, Stan and Gene Austin took us, and this was, this was after Stan had retired from, from being the king. Uh, but, I mean, it's a great time. It's a great time. You get to, you know, this food, you get to see, it's all, it's, and obviously it's all medieval stuff, and kings, and knights, and there's battles, and there's swords, and there's shields, and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what they do. And, uh, and, and I love it, because even though we didn't grow up in this culture or this political times of, of kings, there is something so compelling, so so majestic about a king, isn't there? There's something that captures attention about, about it. And I believe that's true because I believe there's, there's something inside each one of us that longs for a good and wise king, a good and wise leader who can lead our lives, a shepherd. And I think we, we feel the pain of, of bad leaders, of, of bad kings, if you will, uh, in the many areas of our lives. You know, we, we see the pain of bad leadership in our workplaces, all God's people said amen. <laughs> We've seen the pain of, of bad leadership uh, in our politics. We've seen the pain of bad leadership, unfortunately, even in the church of Christ. We see this played out in every political season. We have this great high hopes that there would be a new coming leader who can turn everything around. And we're disappointed again and again, no matter who is voted into leadership. We long for a good king who can make things right. And I believe when the Israelites were, uh, were in exile, they, they felt like this. And let me give you a little background. When they, when they came out of Egypt, when God rescued his people out of Egypt, did you know that they did not have a king? They did not have one king because God was their king. He was supposed to be their one leader. But one day over time, the Israelites, they adopted to the culture around them and they said that they would like a king like the other nations around them. Maybe you remember this in the book of Samuel. And so they ask for a king, and God kind of grants their request and gives them a king. Um, and eventually, a man named King David becomes their king. And God makes a covenant with David. He says to David, I'm, there's always going to be an heir of your family on the throne. He makes a promise, a covenant to him. And so when the Israelites, when we fast forward in the context we've been talking about, they eventually, they're defeated by the Babylonians, and they go into exile. They're deported to Babylon. And they had no king on the throne. So when they came back to the land in the early 500s BC, they still had no king. They had no king. So some questions arise. How is God going to fulfill his covenant, his promise to David, that there's always going to be an heir, a Davidic king on the throne? And when could the Israelites finally expect to get, to get a competent leader who would restore their nation, rebuild their walls, and restore the vitality of their nation? And also another question that maybe they didn't ask directly, but the reader of the scriptures might ask, how is God going to become king again? How is God going to become king of his people once again and fulfill his promise to David? And I believe we get some of these answers when we look at the book of Zechariah. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning. We're a, book, we're a people of the word, a people of one book. We study the word. Turn to Zechariah 9. You might, you might need the table of contents in there again. And look at verses 9 through 10. 
Now, this is, these are the scriptures that Jenna read to, the, read to us this morning, so I'm not going to read them again. But I want you to be looking at this as we journey through our sermon this morning. Zechariah starts off by saying, Rejoice greatly and shout. Why? See, your king comes to you. Or this could be translated, your king is coming to you. It's, there's going to be a future king that is coming to them. This, finally, the king they've been waiting for, finally the leader is coming and he's going to make things right. And we know, after the time of Christ, we know that they had to wait a long time to see this fulfilled. Uh, and we know that this is a prophecy of the King Jesus who came. I mean, this is the very text that describes what we, know, what we call today as Palm Sunday. When Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem, triumphant as their king. It's a prophecy of the Messiah, the coming king. And so when Jesus came, he fulfilled the ability to be the heir of King David and God becoming king again. Do you see how that works? The only way that works is to have this, the son of God and the son of man, the heir of King David and the son of God to be king again. And so last week we talked about the prophet Haggai and his message of living for one thing, the king and his kingdom. And today, I just, I just want to focus on who is this king that we live for? Who is this king that we worship? And, and really, I just, I just want to talk about Jesus today. I don't want to really talk about anything else. I don't want to really even give you any really funny stories or anything. I just want to focus on how awesome Jesus is, on treasuring him, on worshiping him, on who he is, because this text talks about our king. And so Zechariah, he gives four attributes of this coming king, our King Jesus, that I want us to, to meditate on this morning. So the first is this. He says this king is righteous. King Jesus is righteous. Now the word righteous in Hebrew, it, it implies it's a, it's a conformity to an ethical standard. Now what standard, you might ask? Well, it's God's standard. The, only, the one determiner of right and wrong in our world. So it's God's own holiness, his goodness, his law, that is the standard for righteous living. And so this King Jesus lived righteously in his whole life. He kept God's covenant. He kept God's law. In all his ways, he was conformed to whatever was good, whatever was right, whatever was just, whatever was true, whatever was lovely, Jesus was conformed to. In every situation, in every circumstance, he was righteous. Oh, how greatly we need a king who is righteous. And we have that when we make Jesus our king. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus... He uh, is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. And uh, Satan comes to him after he's been fasting for 40 days, and he says, if you're the Son of God, turn this stone to make bread. And Jesus quotes Scripture back to him, and he says, man does not live on bread alone, but only on every word that comes from God. See, Jesus, he was tempted to, to use his power to satisfy his own desires rather than depend on God. Oh, how often we and other kings are tempted to satisfy their own desires by, and by using their power to do so. And then Jesus was tempted to do something powerful just, just for, his, for his own name's sake. Satan says, brings him to the, the high temple mount, and he says, just throw yourself down because it is written, the angels will, will, will save you. I'm paraphrasing here. And he says, do not test the Lord your God. You see, Jesus was tempted to do something powerful to validate his own identity. Oh, how often we are tempted to do things simply to validate our own identity, 
our own, you know, our own insecurities to overcome them. Oh, how we need a king who is not fickle like that. And then Satan tempted him with all the prestige. He shows him all the wealth of the world and the kingdoms. The very thing that Jesus would receive if he would go to the cross. And so Satan tempts him with a shortcut. I'll just give it to you right now if you would just, if you would just worship me. And then Jesus says, says to him, it is, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Oh, how we need a king who is not tempted by the prestige, by the power, by the wealth, by the splendors of this world. So Jesus, he was righteous in every way. Look at this on the screen. Hebrews 4.15 4, says this, We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That's amazing. I mean, we, we know this, but we gloss over it, don't we? I mean, think of how many temptations that you have experienced in your life over the course of your lifetime. Isn't the number so vast? Isn't it so great how often we are tempted? Think about the times maybe you've given in, the times you haven't given in. It's all temptation. And there's maybe temptations that, that you have that maybe I don't experience or temptations that I have that you don't experience. But regardless, Jesus has been faced with them all. Every temptation known to mankind, Jesus was faced with. That is staggering. And I think that is why when, when Jesus' disciples said, hey, Lord, would you teach us to pray? He made sure to include, lead us not into temptation. Because this is a king who knows the, the, the power and the persistence of temptation in our lives. He knows its strength and he knows that we are but so weak. He knows that we need to pray regularly. Lead us not into temptation. But yet Jesus in his earthly, li in his earthly life, he never gave into it one time. He was so holy, so righteous, so good, so wonderful, so dedicated to love that no temptation could deter him from his mission. Because he knew that for his work on earth to be accomplished, he needed to remain pure from sin so that he could take all of yours away. So that every time that you've given into temptation, Jesus could make the sacrifice for your sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this was prophesied by Zechariah much before. Look what, this, this wasn't our text, but look at Zechariah 3.9. He prophesies that God says, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In a single day. He's talking about the cross. All of the sin is going to be removed at one time in history. He's going to take it all away. This is the plan of salvation. That our righteous king would come and he would take away all your unrighteousness. All of your sin, he would take it upon himself so that you could be forgiven and so that you could be transformed. That you might become the righteousness of God. That you might live a new life in Christ Jesus and become like him. So, in addition to all this, Jesus the King, he takes all of our sin, all the times. If you thought about all those times that you've given into temptation, he's taken all of that sin upon him and it was nailed to the cross. So that when you stand before the judgment seat of God, which we will all do at some point, you don't have to fear being condemned to hell. You don't have to fear the punishment of God. You don't have to fear anything of that because he has taken all of the punishment. He has taken it all upon himself so that you could be loved and be welcomed into eternal life with him forever. 
He's given us that free gift of salvation. So it matters, it really matters that our king is righteous, that he is a righteous king, because he is our great example to follow, and he, he can sympathize us when he hears our prayers, and our eternal life depends on this very fact, that our king is a righteous king who can take our sins away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that's the first attribute, that that King Jesus is righteous. The second is, King Jesus is victorious. It says the coming king is victorious in verse 9. Now, what's kind of going on here in the Hebrew is Joyce Baldwin, in, in her commentary, she says that this king has been through some ordeal in which he has experienced the Lord's deliverance and so is victorious. So he's saying that the, the king has, been, has had some type of journey, some type of, of situation where he has been delivered and saved and now is victorious and reigning. This is the prophecy. This is describing Jesus' journey to the cross, his death, and his victory, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He has become victorious over all things. And you think about his situation. I mean, from a totally human perspective, Jesus' death was an utter defeat. It looked to the people who were trying to stop him, it was, they, they had done it. He was a failure. He was supposed to be a religious leader that was starting a move, movement, yet he was executed like a common criminal. The religious leaders and all those who were against Jesus, they thought that they could defeat him. They thought that they could silence him. They thought that they could stop this movement of God and put it down, but how wrong were they? Acts 2, Peter says, This man was handed over to you, the religious leaders, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God, don't you love when God gets involved? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to hold, to keep its hold on him. He's victorious. Jesus was so victorious Demons had to obey him. Satan couldn't entice him. The religious leaders, they couldn't stop him. The Roman soldiers, they couldn't kill him. And death could not keep him in the grave because God raised him from the dead and made him victorious over all things. Amen? When the king is victorious, so can his kingdom people be. That's the good news. When the king is victorious, so can we be. Jesus said it this way, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, I think many of us, we go around in our Christian lives and we go around defeated. We go around dragging, discouraged, doubtful, downcast, dead in our sins. But Jesus is longing, the victorious King is longing to give you freedom. And if you would but turn to Him, if you would but just ask Him to set you free, my friends, I believe you would experience a new victory in your life through our victorious King. When the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is the promise we have with our victorious king. The third attribute, Zechariah tells us, is that King Jesus is humble. King Jesus is humble. Now, the NIV translates this lowly, but the Hebrew can be translated humble. It could also be translated poor. And I think the the idea here is humility. So I'm I'm using the word humble. And I think we could have a whole sermon on the humility of Jesus. We have a whole series on the humility of Jesus because he was so humble. He was so humble, and it's so counter to the world. I mean, our world primarily lives by by self-advancement. 
by rising up, by getting ahead, by achieving more, by making more money, by getting nicer things, by moving up in your career, by getting more recognition and fame and honor. How opposite the life and person of King Jesus Christ. He left the glory of heaven. (laughs) The king left his palace, so to speak, and came down to this garbage dump of earth in some respects. I think about that, that scene in Lion King where Mufasa's talking to Simba and he's, and he's telling him, oh, my, your, your kingdom is all where the light touches. And then Simba's like, well, what about that shadowy place over there? And he's like, Mufasa's like, don't ever go there. Don't ever go there. And sometimes I think earth is that shadowy place, this place that's full of, full of pain and suffering, full of death. It's so unlike the kingdom of heaven. Yet Jesus came willingly. I'm glad God the Father didn't say, don't go there. No, he willingly sent his son to the shadowy place. He came and became one of us. This is God's ultimate humility. I mean, to come to earth and leave his palace, this would be like, you know, Bill Gates, and I don't know if that really works anymore. Maybe it's Jeff Bezos now, uh, you know. It'd be like one of them, like, renouncing their, their wealth and moving into the slums. It would, it, I mean, I can't describe the chasm between heaven and earth is so large. We are at pains to describe it. And when Jesus got here, it's not like he said, well, you know, I left heaven. That was really comfortable. I might as well at least try to make myself a little comfortable here. He didn't do that. I mean, he could have been born into a nice middle-class family. He could, have, he could have been born into a wealthy family. He could have made sure he got a palace. No, he was born into a poor family. He was born into poverty. And in his ministry, he became homeless. He told people, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Ever considered that Jesus was born into a borrowed manger and he was buried in a borrowed tomb? From his birth to his death, he was, he was, uh, he was so humble. He was so humble. He went to the lowest place. And he was humble when he dealt with others. He did not assert his message of the kingdom by force, but he invited people in. He welcomed little children. He befriended the lowly of the lowly, the tax collectors, the the prostitutes, the known sinners of his day. He had no qualms with associating with them and befriending them. Nothing was below Jesus. And in in fact, there's this famous story where right before Jesus was about to, to go to his death, he makes sure to gather his disciples for a meal. And he wants to do the lowest task for them, the task of a household servant. And when you, when you walked around Jer- Jerusalem or, or Israel, you'd get dusty and your feet would get dirty and grimy and, and disgusting. But Jesus, he, he took the towel and he bent down and he took some water and he took his disciples' feet and he washed those nasty feet because he wanted to show them how much he loved them, how much he cared for them. The king of the universe, washing dirty feet. How humble is our Lord? How humble is our Lord? And obviously, Jesus' death was the most humble of all. Paul, Paul, he said, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, he died a criminal's death. They, instead of, they, they should have given him a crown of gold when he came into the city, but they gave him a crown of thorns and placed it on his head. 
They, they should have carried him on a majestic throne into Jerusalem, but they made him bear a cross instead. They should have put a majestic robe upon his back, but they whipped his back instead. 39 times, maybe more. He was flogged. He was beaten. The king of kings who should have been treated so royally was treated like a common criminal. In fact, even worse. He went to the most humble death of all, and he did this to save you and to save me and to save all of mankind. He would go to such great depths to show his love. He did this to save us lowly, us humble, us ordinary people. Even with all our sins, even when we give in temptation, he dies to save us anyway. Don't we need a king like Jesus? Don't we need a king like Jesus? A king who is righteous, who is victorious, who is humble. And lastly, we need a king. A king, our king Jesus, who brings peace. And king Jesus who brings peace. The text says he came riding in on a donkey. And you know this from Palm Sunday. And now, what you need to know is, if kings were coming to wage war, they would not be riding on a donkey, they would be riding on a horse. And so, and, and Jeru Jerusalem was no stranger to kings coming in violence. They knew about the Assyrians coming to conquer in violence. They knew about the Babylonians. They knew about the Greeks. They knew about Rome, who said, we're coming to bring peace to you. Never mind that we're going to destroy everybody along the way with our armies and military might. You see, all the kings and kingdoms before had tried to bring peace through violence, through force. But Jesus, it's kind of, I kind of think like, like the, the alien coming, like I come in peace. Like he's, he's showing them, I come in peace. I come riding on a donkey. I don't come to, to make this my kingdom by force. I'm coming in peace. And then verse 10, look in your Bibles, look what it says. It says, God says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He's saying the instruments of war, the weapons of war are going to be taken away because the people of God won't be using them anymore. They're not going to establish this kingdom by force. They're not going to establish this kingdom by might. They're going to establish it some other way. How? Well, look what it says. He says, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, King Jesus, yes, he is going to rule all things. He is at the right hand of the Father, ruling all things. But his kingdom is not coming by violence. It's coming by proclaiming peace to the nations. And that word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. It means the blessing of God, the wholeness of God, when everything is finally the way it's supposed to be, in the world and in your life. That's God's peace. And so the Jesus, the King, He's come bringing this message of peace to the nations. And so obviously, Jesus isn't extending His kingdom by force. He's extending it by proclaiming the gospel through the lives and deeds of His kingdom people. Do you see the difference? Jesus, when Jesus said, my, king, my kingdom is not of this world, He wasn't joking. It's, it's totally different. It's a, it's a gospel of peace, of good news toward all men. That we can find peace with God and peace with one another and that we can all be reconciled into the family of God. Isn't that good news? That is what Jesus has done for us. We proclaim 
a different king, a real king who is different from any other king in the world. We proclaim a different kingdom, a different community that is different from any other community and kingdom in the world. We proclaim this peace with God. So let me talk just a few points about how we might be able to live this out in our lives, both as individuals and as, and as a church. And because, the first is this, because Jesus is not a forceful king, he invites everyone to surrender to him. So if, you, if you're here and you, and, you, and you haven't made that decision to make Jesus your king, to make Jesus your Lord, I invite you to not delay. He, has, he, has, he is extending his arms of forgiveness of his love to you. And, and honestly, this is a decision that, that us Christians, brothers and sisters, that we have to make every day. We have to get up and say, Jesus, you are Lord and King, not me. How freeing would that be if we did that every day? Secondly, I want to encourage you that the character of the king determines the character of his people. The character of the king determines the character of his people. We need to trust that Jesus, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he is at work to conform us to his image. That we might be transformed, that we might become, as Ephesians 5 says, imitators of God. And so kingdom people should be like the king. And so if we're looking at this text, we need to pray that God transforms us to be righteous people to be blameless in all our ways, that we might be conformed to God's standard for good and righteousness and love in all of our ways. We need to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to make us victorious, that yes, He is at work to root out sin in our lives, that we might have victory over sin and temptation. Not saying to be perfect, but to have victory ongoing in our lives. And then also, we're trusting that God is making His kingdom people humble. You know, actually, I was here last night the Liberian church had a barbecue. It was, it was their version of Rally Day. I decided to stop by and say hi and see what they were doing. And there's there an elder in their church who's, who's uh, you know, probably in his early 60s, if I, if I were to guess, maybe a little older. And he's one of their elders. And I've met him a couple times before. His name's, his name's Joseph. And, um, and this man, he was just, he, was, he just blew me away. He was, he was such a servant. And I could tell from the moment I walked in, he was there to, to serve me. I didn't, I didn't need it. I wasn't asking for anything, but he, you know what, I, I, I had Daisy with me, and I spilled some food, and he said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, I will clean it up. And then I watched the rest of the night as this man walked around the room, serving people, putting out chairs. He was so eager to serve. He could have claimed, well, I'm an elder, I've, 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 I've kind of, you know, other people can serve me now. No, he was a leader in the church, and he was leading by example. He was willing to do any task, so should we be. And we should also be people who proclaim peace to the world. People who bring the, the message of the good news. Peace with God and peace with one another. And finally, the last application I want to talk about is, is worship. Isn't that where this whole text started? This whole scripture? Rejoice greatly, O daughter Jerusalem. Shout. Give a shout. Why? Because this king is coming to you and this is what he's like. This is why we make corporate worship the center of our life together. And this is also why you got to find times throughout the week where you're rejoicing in God, praising Him, remembering how good He is. I think we take Jesus for granted sometimes. He's so good. He's so wonderful. He deserves our praise on a regular basis. Find time on your commute. Find time while, if, you're, if you stay at home, find time while you're cleaning or doing something. Find time at work. Do whatever you have to do to find time to worship and to celebrate our King. 
And we're also going to respond by worshiping this morning. We're going to end our service with two songs about celebrating our King. And before we do, I'm going to pray. But let's pray that we can worship joyfully this coming King. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. You are so good. We give you our praise. We give you our, our, our joy. We just, we just want to give it back to you, God. We want to celebrate because of how good you are. We thank you that you are the righteous king. That Jesus, when you came, that, that, you, that you endured every temptation, but that you never gave in. We praise you for being so determined to present yourself as an offering to God that we might have our sins forgiven. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us so greatly. And we thank you that you are now victorious over all things. That yes, you are seated now at the right hand of the Father. And that you will come again to judge the living and the dead. We praise you as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, and as the Lord of our lives. We praise you and thank you for your humility that you became obedient to death, even death on the cross. God, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you that you are our humble king. And we thank you that you have given us this message of peace, this good news of your reconciliation to the world. I pray that you would make us faithful in proclaiming it to the nations and help us to rejoice in you every day and always. In your name, amen. We're going to worship our king this morning and respond to this text that says rejoice greatly. And actually that's a command in scripture that, that we want to rejoice and shout for joy. And can we bring that spirit with us as we, as we sing these two songs together? Let's praise Jesus. Let's give him a grateful shout of celebration. Would you stand with me and turn to number 23 and sing, Oh, worship the king, all glorious above. Let's worship our king Jesus. Jesus. <laughs>